Hello and welcome back to the How to Become a Doctor podcast. I'm Lucy, a fourth year medical student at the University of Cambridge, and on this podcast we bring you all the information we wish we knew when applying to medicine. Through interviewing inspiring guests in the healthcare world and talking to organisations including the King's Fund and GMC, we'll share our experiences and teach you how to become a doctor. As always, don't forget to follow us on Instagram at How to Become a Doctor with Dr. Spelt DR to keep up to date with everything we're doing. So, without further ado, let's jump into today's episode. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to another episode of the How to Become a Doctor podcast. Today, I'm going to dive straight into our topic of discussion, which is health inequalities. We tend to talk a lot about the ethical context of health and illness, right? But it's equally important to have an understanding of the social context of disease and the social, you know, wider determinants of health that can unjustly increase an individual's risk of a certain disease and even affect their prognosis. So to discuss these issues, I'm joined by the lovely Dr. Carol Brain, who represents the Inequalities and Health Alliance of the Royal College of Physicians. And I'm just going to hand over to her really quickly to tell us who she is and what she does. Hi, hi there, everybody. And thanks so much for inviting me. So I am a public health physician and I trained in medicine and then went and did general medical training with a bit of neurology and psychiatry. And then I really got the bug of epidemiology. In fact, I'd got it as a medical student. I was very interested in environmental issues at the time, and I still am, and sustainability. And I, when we had epidemiology at medical school, I was fascinated by the idea that exposures were linked to specific diseases. I'm also smoking is an obvious one, but I remember the one that we particularly had as an example that I delved into in some detail was asbestos and the interaction of asbestos and smoking in relation to um, cancer outcomes. And that was when I really got the bug for epidemiology, but I didn't then implement that until later when I saw a fellowship opportunity while I was working in neurology. And uh, I took up that opportunity and was very lucky to be successful in that fellowship. And then that brought me to Cambridge. So I'm at the University of Cambridge and I started doing work out in the field in the area of brain health and ageing. And that's really been where my research career has taken me. So I went from epidemiology then into more general public health. And that's been my home, as it were, as as a physician. And that course, public health takes you very much into the area of inequalities and understanding the incredible diversity of our populations, but also the experiences that we have across our life courses and the way that that influences our health. So I'm in Cambridge and I hold a chair in public health medicine and I have the privilege of leading the uh, Committee on Health Inequalities at the Royal College of Physicians and being the advisor to the um, college president on population health. So that's sort of how I come to be here in this conversation. That just sounds amazing. I've always had sort of an interest on this side of things. And in medical school, obviously, I've only just completed first year. But public health is something that interests me quite a bit. So would you have to tell me what your sort of job entails? So, well, public health is the Um, effectively it's the organized efforts of society to improve health and well-being of populations so in a way it's sort of about denominators it's about it's it the individual you have um, as a physician and as medical students you're very much trained to think about the the individual in front of you the patient 
And when you train in public health, you think about the collective, the, the group from whom that individual comes or other people like that individual. So it might be groups of patients or, or denominated populations. But that's really, it's like, it's context. So public health is context. Mm-hmm. So my job is very is very varied really, because I'm a, I'm a senior academic now. I, you know, I, d- I don't have contact with individual patients for many years. I did do a neurology outpatients for quite a few years, but then I the pressure of the sort of public health epidemiology work took over. So my my role really involves quite a lot of committees and meetings and trying to do stuff at national level, at regional level and at local level. So trying to engage with public health colleagues locally as well as um, nationally and trying to influence what happens both in terms of research, but also in, the, in terms of the way that we think about um, how we influence public health and population health and well-being. If you'd asked me kind of earlier in my career, what I'd say is, well, I'm out in the field sort of interviewing people and talking to them about their health experiences and trying to collect systematic information that we can then put into um, the databases that then generate the findings to, to create the papers. Now it's it's much more trying to sort of lead teams and so on in it, doing those kinds of things. So the specific research that's taken up most of my time over the last decades, in addition to sort of service provision and teaching, is going out into the population and interviewing people, uh, old people, and following them across time and trying to do as much on the biological front as we can. And that's determined by uh, grants and f- the funds that are available to to investigate uh, individuals, as it were, and then working out what's um, going on in people's brain health across time. So one of the things that we've done is shown that dementia age for age has gone down uh, in more recent generations, which is a really good thing. And that's probably because of lots of investment into health and well-being across populations in uh, um, post-war. But what we haven't been able to do is to do work with our diverse populations. That's been very much indigenous white populations from Mm -hmm. the UK. And one of the things that we haven't been able to do because we haven't been able to raise the money to do it is is extend that out and look at inequalities. I mean, the inequalities that there are in brain health. So that's one thing that I have tried to do and tried to raise, spent a lot of time trying to raise money for, but haven't been able to raise the money for. So that's give you a kind of a, a little bit of an indication. I mean, another thing that, of course, that I do is supervise research students. And in the past, I did a lot of teaching of medical undergraduates, but also of uh, students coming through public health and trainees in public health. So that's a kind of a bit of a range of the things and the pressures and the frustrations. (laughs) (laughs) That sounds amazing. I'm quite interested in research, so I might pick your brain a little bit later on today. Um, But we're just going to dive straight into health inequalities now. So for a lot of our students, this might be the first time they're coming across the term. Would you be able to quickly define what it is? Well, I suppose the first thing to say is not sort of, a, it's not an it as it were, but, but it's health inequalities would be loosely defined as variation in experience of health across the life course. And of course, um, and that's health and well-being. So we're talking about mental health and physical health. And mm-hmm. 
we have traditionally rather separated these out, but I think there is, uh, and there's always been an awareness that that's a bit artificial. It's a bit like saying dentistry is, you know, kind of oral health is separate from body health. Um, that we are we are organisms, and mental health and physical health must be integrated. But basically, it's about variation in though in that in that across populations, and across time. And one of the starkest illustrations of that is, is the, the hugely different life expectancies that you see in different groupings, uh, whether it be social disadvantage or, um, or black and minority ethnic groups. Sort of our diverse populations have very different life expectancies and trying to understand what is at the core of that. And of course, there is variation naturally as well. There's, as medical students, you'll be aware of sort of st stochastic variation. And there will always be a distribution in populations of health experience. Mm -hmm. But there are some that are driven by systematic or systemic things that happen to us across our life courses. And of course, across generations as well, that we have a much greater understanding now that um, some things go across intergenerationally, which are maybe socially patterned, culturally patterned or also related to genetics and epigenetics. So, and these things are often separated out, you know, you sort of get the feeling that it's only epigenetics or it's only genetics or it's only social or it's only cultural. But of course, the fact is, if you look at the world around you and if you think about um, the natural environment, these things can't be disentangled. They're by nature integrated. And so it's our role in terms of trying to understand inequalities, to see what are the modifiable, where are the things, where is where are the things that are modifiable by human societies in ways that are well, you know, that are sustainable uh, across time, to address the this what is effectively so it's about justice and social justice if effectively that it's not right that different groups in society have very very different experiences of health that can be mitigated, can be changed for the better. Yeah, exactly. So obviously there are biological differences which do go on to affect health, but there are also a wider range of factors that affect health in ways that they shouldn't necessarily be. So overall, health inequalities are, you know, sort of unjust and avoidable differences in people's health across the population and even between specific population groups. I was doing a little bit of reading and I came across a stat that said something like the life expectancy for individuals between like the north of England or the south of England was almost a decade in terms of difference. I did read this on the King's Fund. So if anybody is interested to read a little bit more on that topic, I would definitely recommend you go there. And I mean, considering that the UK is a developed country, that stat was a little shocking to me. But of course, it just comes to show that, you know, health inequalities do go against principles of social justice because they are avoidable and sadly they do exist and it's not that hard to mitigate them because all the factors that come together are so intricately entwined. It's hard to, you know, try to improve this part and then affect this part, but in the end affect each other in ways that we necessarily can't control. So health inequalities are something that's not random, something that doesn't happen by chance. They're socially determined um, by circumstances that are beyond our control in some cases. And these go on to disadvantage people and sort of limit their you know, opportunity to live longer or live healthier. And yeah, there are a lot of factors that cause this. Would we be able to dissect a couple of key factors? 
that end up causing health inequalities and how they connect to one another? Well, there are some major areas such as, I mean, smoking, or clearly the epidemic of smoking has been, um, was originally, has kind of worked through the population in different ways. So first sort of coming through men smoking and then um, and then it was in different sort of social groupings and then uh, then it moved on to women and then effectively was the medical profession understood that smoking was very harmful so you saw the kind of the more educated folk who um, had access to a lot of information and also access to, sort of were able to uh, it, it didn't it wasn't part of their cultural life they could give it up and so you see sort of health patterns changing across time in different groupings in society with smoking then becoming more prevalent in those who are less advantaged and these are really really important to understand now so that's one where the combination of individual behavior and collective action has led to a huge change so smoking has changed very dramatically in the population and most of the change we understand is from collective action. So legislation, uh, changes in patterns of acceptability uh, of the, the behaviour in different places and, and taxation. So actually costing, causing just simply finance. Uh, and there's a very delicate interplay between that because there's also um, how it influences what, what's going on in the black market, for example. So you have to be very aware of how these things change, even when you're dealing with something which appears to be a sort of individual behaviour. But it's quite clear from, um, from where I sit at the public health level that the really effective thing is not so much smoking cessation, although it plays a part and you will be taught about it as, as students and Doctors definitely have a part to play, but the big impact is when society accepts that there's a need to change, to change something at the collective level. And of course, we have that for helmets and uh, seatbelts in cars and so on. One of the most important things, I think, if you're sort of asking me about where, where are the sweet spots at the moment, we have an obesity epidemic, which you'll all be very aware of. And patients, uh, you know, the, the nature of patients is very different now from, and the conditions are different now from what was when I was a medical student. And we do know that there are certain actions like sugar taxes, which can have a major impact. And of course, that's quite a hot topic for research, but there is a really strong body of evidence that um, envi the environments in which we live influence the sugar availability and sugar tax would help. It'd be it's one of the things that can be done. And as doctors and as medical students and as people who are aware of inequalities, these are things that need to be acceptable to societies. And that includes media and so on, because there's a lot of tension in the media and with politicians and with lobbying mm -hmm. groups and so on that we need to play a role in that as well. And the Royal College does, um, you know, very, very actively plays a role in these sorts of areas as well. So that's sort of medic as advocacy for population health, as well as having an influence on the individual patient groups and, the, and their families and sort of the, the collective that doctors have access to. So essentially you've discussed two kind of key examples, so smoking and obesity. But I, I just want to bring it to everybody's attention that, you know, the um, fundamental causes of health inequalities, as you said, stem from much more than that. So um, they are basically an unequal distribution of things like income, power, 
um, and just wealth in general, I would say, because obviously it's sort of a vicious cycle. Depending on your income, you have a certain access to education or you have a certain access to um, work. Uh, your occupation might affect how much you're earning, how your housing is, how where you live, what the transport links are like, how much access you have to education, how much you are able to provide for any children that you might have, and so on. So depending on all of these factors combined, you can, you know, sort of end up in situations where you turn to maybe smoking or maybe you turn to alcohol. So once again, it's sort of a vicious cycle with all of these things interplaying together. Um, and that's why we need to look at the root of the issue and see where we can treat everyone from a collective standpoint so as to minimise, you know, the effect that this is having on their health. Absolutely. And, um, <laughs> yeah. I, when people ask me about research that I mentioned earlier about dementia being less common age for age now than it was 30 years ago, and they say, what is the single most important thing that to, uh, as it were, to, to address or to, to promote uh, brain health? I'll say reduction in inequalities and that applies globally as well as nationally uh, clearly but that's a, you know that's an enormous area and as physicians and medics we what we need to do is understand how how we have a role in terms of arguing that point nationally and trying to say to optimize health we need to reduce inequalities but actually also try to look at where are the points where we can actually make a change and some of those things are saying it is acceptable to have a sugar tax or whatever you know it, it won't cripple the economy or trying to make the point to use the evidence base others is maybe working at the local level to say well let's look at the inequalities within our locality and try to see what what might be addressable there and then the other things are to think about what's the service that we're providing and are there inequalities in the service that we're providing because there is very good evidence there's quite um, some lovely work of um, the way that inequalities are manifest in renal services for example and trying to think about that across the different range of services that people um, and you mentioned this at the beginning Frida um, that people access services in differential ways so there is good evidence that people present with cancer symptoms late uh, from certain social groupings. And therefore, uh, probably the setting, the natural history of the disorder will be not um, as benign or sort of not, uh, will be more malignant. And so these are really, really important areas, I think, that are directly relevant. And we have a role to play, I think, in all of those areas, um, but we need to play to our own strengths. So some people would be passionate about the clinical service that they provide, but if they can bring inequalities and thinking about inequalities into that, you know, that's part of the huge jigsaw piece, so the enormous interrelated uh, picture that um, that leads to inequalities in health. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So we've touched on this quite a bit. I was going to ask how can we break this vicious cycle, but I feel like you've covered that pretty well in terms of you know targeting points where we can actually make a difference for collective society as a whole, as opposed to focusing just on a particular factor or a, fi or a particular person or group. Another sort of factor that I wanted to discuss is the impact of adverse childhood experiences because obviously we've looked at the physical side of things and the mental and psychological side of things is also just as important because that can go on to affect how that child lives out their life and how they bring more life into onto earth and how they sort of project how they've been brought up onto future generations 
What are adverse childhood experiences and how do they impact health inequalities? There's a whole range of them. And for example, experiencing domestic violence, experiencing drug use in parents, alcohol, uh, sort of uh, the parent, the parenting, what the nature of the parenting and experience of the um, criminal justice system. So a whole range of different things. If they're readily available online, uh, do look at them. And they are very, I mean, they are incredibly important, accounting for a significant proportion of adverse mental health, as you've rightly um, highlighted. And there is a lot of research going on um, at the moment. And they've been characterised into particular sort of uh, baskets of types of um, negative experience in early life. And all of these things are more likely to happen if you're in a disadvantaged, in a less advantaged uh, community, in a community where, there, as you've mentioned, you know, where, where there are financial pressures, where there are no jobs, where patterns of social activity are quite negative, such as drug dealing or operations of criminal groups out of those areas. And so... I think there's a sense that we need to flip it round and say, actually, if you live in those communities and you're surviving, even if you're smoking and drinking too much or whatever, and on benefits, there are you're actually surviving. So even even if it's with ill health, and to try to focus on the things that help the positivity of those environments, because um, there can be very strong collective, um, a sense of collective in those groups and. Uh, there's also a sense of the judgment of others on those groups. So as physicians, clinicians, we see individuals within coming from communities where people are experiencing those patterns of behavior. But it's not it's it's it, the, the need to understand the context of the person and try to look for the positive, I think, is very, very important because then you can build out from that rather than focusing only on the negative and in a in what can seem i think from if you're in that situation a very judgmental approach and very alienating so individuals feel very alienated from society so i think adverse child experiences are incredibly important um, and we need to be very careful about how we think about them because um, we want to work with our populations and co-produce the solutions not kind of come in and point fingers and say oh you naughty person you're smoking or you know it's uh, uh, clearly um, domestic violence is something that is just very uh, is very much in the media eye at the moment but um, sensitive approaches um, of the different sectors that become involved in that kind of behavior uh, are incredibly important because you can actually make things far, work, far worse by going in and, uh, without a cultural um, and a social understanding of how those things arise and what it's like to be a woman or a man, um, much more likely to be a woman, but in those circumstances and how to support children in those, in those situations that you can go in and do more harm uh, in some ways. So I think it's... Um, it's a really important area. It's been simplified into those, you know, sort of um, uh, the, the baskets uh, of types of um, experience. But the solutions are, must be understood very, or the to get to solutions, we need to understand the nature of those problems much, much better than we do, I think, at the moment. Yeah. So as you've said, um, sometimes it's just as important to know about the context surrounding an issue as opposed to, you know, just the issue itself. And, you know, stressful experiences during childhood 
can cause serious problems later on down the line, whether it be physically or mentally, you know, increased risk of heart disease, diabetes, etc. Um, but it's also important to remember that a lot of people can overcome adverse childhood experiences, especially if they have, you know, protective factors in place, like a trusted child-adult relationship. It might be with a parent, it might be with an uncle, it might be with um, a grandparent, anything really, something, you know, positive and secure that they can base their um, ideas upon and the belief that they can overcome their hardship and the fact the ability to manage their emotions and behavior um, also sort of play into this because all in all um, it is obviously often a case-by-case situation no one person is necessarily going through the same thing but they all have a similar sort of footprint um, which if we can understand better we can support them better um, while making them aware that we are here to support them not to judge them not to negate their opinions or you know their priorities in life um, but just to be there with them to help them get through it yes I think I think sort of the importance of the compassion and kindness and understanding but also bringing the evidence base insofar uh, whilst understanding the limitations of what we understand into every kind of interaction whatever you're doing is grounded as much as you can in the in the evidence base that we have and if you can also uh, you know help to contribute to our understanding and when you do do things and initiate and sort of collect evidence whether it be qualitative or quantitative think about writing it up because that's how we learn from each other and there's so much wonderful experience that you know people have at all stages of their career which just gets lost I mean it goes into your own your own expertise but it doesn't get um, written about and chewed over and thought about and got into the public domain and I, and I think we we we're the richer when we manage to do that because we can share that you know, experiences and learning Lovely. Do you have any advice for aspiring or current medical students who want to get into a research? Well, I think I, I think well, the most important thing is what are you interested in? Look around you to see who's working in the in the area that you're interested in, and then make a beeline. To try to try to talk to them. And there are lots of opportunities with your with special study modules, um, and. It's really fantastic for us to work with medical students who are committed to a particular area. It's much, much better if it's something that you really, you know, you really are interested in. Um, and there are lots of opportunities. I mean, systematic reviewing is, is people, people often get roped into systematic reviewing, which I think is a very good skill to have. But there are all sorts of other, uh, other approaches that even with a relatively short period of time, students can get involved in. So I think that's the most important thing is actually identify somebody who you think is working in an area that you're really interested in and then approaching them and saying, I'm, I'd love to do some, something, you know, is there something I can do to contribute? I suppose one, one thing I could just add about inequalities is if you are interested in, well, when you're both in practice but also in research thinking about inequalities the diversity of inequality and adverse experiences is so great that it's you know there may be there may be areas of particular interest like particular uh, cultural groupings particular age groups particular um, sexuality um, so there's all there's such a range of of important areas there's so much to be done um, that you know you 
it, it, you, you can't do inequalities as a whole. It, it's, it's probably better to kind of try to work out looking at a particular area like a war clinical service. So to bring the episode to a close, we've got a couple of reflective questions for you. First of all, what is the biggest lesson you would say you have learned in your career so far? I think it is about the integration of knowledge is really key that uh, we need to understand the specifics, but never lose sight of the way in which those specifics fit into the bigger picture. And I think that relates to clinical experience as well as to research. Last question of the episode. What has been your proudest achievement so far? From the research perspective, it would be showing that reduction in dementia across generations because it's got such profound implications for our understanding of brain aging and also what we need to do about it globally in terms of inequalities and how it fits in with um, our sort of our existence as human as humans. Thank you so much for being on here with us today, Dr. Carol. It was a pleasure speaking to you and I've learned so much. I'm sure our listeners have as well. It's been a pleasure. Thanks a lot. (laughs) 